Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Le Creuset. As a chef, we always talk about sourcing the best quality ingredients and knowing your suppliers, but using the right cookware and tools is just as important. Le Creuset was the first to pioneer colorful enamel cookware over 90 years ago. With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality and design, and they have been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories it creates and the style it represents. They are the first to introduce color to the kitchen and are pioneers in enamel cast iron. Check out the new color Le Creuset just launched in September. Indigo is the truest blue. I love Le Creuset. It is truly one of the few kitchen pots and pans that I can just recommend that professionals use. We use them at our restaurants and they use at home too. Like it's my pot and pan of choice at home and it's definitely the pot and pan of choice that I use at my restaurants. You can see them at all the Momofuku restaurants. They look great. They're incredibly durable and they're perfect for cooking, roasting, braising, frying, just all around one of the best pots you can buy for yourself or as a gift for someone else. Get free shipping at lecrusade.com slash Dave with promo code Dave, D-A-V-E. Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network and presented by Major Domo Media. My guest today is Vivek Garapali, one of my close friends. He is what you would say a healthcare entrepreneur, someone that has done extraordinarily well. He started several companies, most recently Clover Health, an insurance company. He is someone that I look up to, that I get advice. He is one of the most ambitious, most intelligent most thoughtful, most controversial figures I know. I have never met anyone that has been willing to wager everything on something that he believes in, even more so than me, because he doesn't have to work as hard as he does, and he doesn't have to leverage everything he has on his current business, and he won't go over everything that he's done in his life today because he's someone that I would love to have on repeatedly because you know he's not a chef, he's not an actor, he's not someone in entertainment or hospitality, but I believe that there's things that Vivek does that is sort of universal. It's the belief in yourself, understanding your strengths and weaknesses, and most importantly, not being afraid to fall on your face. And since I've gotten to know Vivek over seven, eight years, he's gotten a lot better as a person. And we are not born in this sort of platonic ideal of a perfect human being, having a humanist understanding of the world. And every day, every year, every time I like have a conversation, I can see that he's trying to figure out how to improve himself and how that can be a reflection in his business. Most importantly, I think Vivek is an inspiration to anyone because it's proof that you can do anything. I really believe that. And the risks you need to take to throw it all away, to start over from scratch and to like just sort of dream as big as you possibly can. And, you know, a quick story about Vivek. Every time I see him, almost every time I see him, especially since he started Clover two, three years ago, you could see the nervousness and the angst and more just the energy about starting this business. And he still says this to me, hey, Dave, I know that I can sleep on your couch. Like, that's a crazy statement for someone that has been as financially successful as Vivek, knowing that he has put everything he has into his businesses. It's really a rare thing to see for someone that could easily be retired and not have to do this. It's just an itch he has to scratch. 
He's a gambler and a cowboy, but he's someone that I think is genuinely dedicated to trying to make the world a better place right now. And when he tells me that, it's very inspirational to me. It's about not resting on your laurels, not accepting the status quo and realizing that life is short. And he is one of the most generous, most loyal friends I've ever met. And he really is an inspiration to me. And I thought that his story could be inspirational to you, even if you are not in healthcare. Listen, I don't even understand what Clover does. <laughs> I don't understand like any of the healthcare business that he does. I do know he's really good at what he does. And most importantly, he does it in a way that is, again, inspirational to me, which is why I wanted him on this podcast, because I think he's a winner and he wins because he's not afraid to fail and he's taken some massive chances. And my couch is always open for him because I doubt that he'll ever need it, but he makes decisions like he is betting everything that he would have to sleep on my couch. And I have no doubt that if he ever did, he would find a way to get back to the top again. That's just the kind of person he is. And we um, recorded this a couple weeks ago in New York City with our other producer, Augie. And why I wanted Vivek on was with Augie and Isaac, my two producers, we talk a lot about work ethic and getting sort of some meaning out of your work and make sure you don't work too much or how do you get to where you want to be, right? Is it too much to risk to dream too big? And this podcast and this conversation with Vivek will cover just a small amount, but this is the kind of individual and the kind of people that I'd love to bring on board more and more. So I'll shut up now. Enjoy the podcast. Here's the conversation with Vivek Garapali of Clover Health. It's a little bit strange talking to my, my good friend. Um, welcome. Thanks, Dave. Very, very, uh, it's the kindest intro anyone's ever given me. I appreciate that. But um, before I begin, it's like, tell me a little bit about what you do. Obviously, like, I haven't interviewed a friend before. I've never been interviewed before. So, <laughs> really? Yeah, I, never. <laughs> Probably for good reason. Easily my most successful, one of my most successful friends, if not my most successful friend that's done it on his own. You're in the healthcare sector. And honestly, I don't even quite understand what it is that you do <laughs> new, but what I always find compelling, and I think one of the reasons why we became good friends, even though we disagree on many things, was simple the fact that like, wow, this guy's fucking all in on everything he does and he just wants to win. And it's crazy to see your growth as a person and you have some really interesting and I think sharp takes on healthcare. And maybe that's maybe the best way to start just sure, to like, yeah. oh, wait, like this guy knows exactly what the fuck he's talking about. So I would say what we're trying to do now with the company I, I run called Clover, we're very much in the uh, chaotic period of trying to build something that hopefully does some big things. And so the, the thesis behind Clover was, could, can we build a healthcare company where if we execute on our mission of improving every life, in our case, we're focused right now on the elderly population in the U.S., does improving their health outcomes drive business value? We've all had experiences with health insurance to some extent or with family. You typically have in your mind that your health insurers, they're to hopefully pay your bills. Um, and we obviously, that's a humongous obligation of ours. But for us is how do we leverage all the information that we get on you to actually take that data uh, and improve your health, health outcomes with it? So- when I was told what you're doing, because I never quite understand everything that you do on the healthcare, because it's so, it's very confusing. 
quite frankly, right? And I think one of the it's reasons you, you've been successful is you like love highly regulated industries because you can like become an expert in things that no one else really wants to become. What I've admired and why I wanted to talk about this to start was when you started Clover, you didn't have to do anything. You could have effectively retired. In fact, it, you sort of told me like, I don't know if I have to work anymore, so I'm going to figure out what I want to do. And one of the craziest fucking things you've ever said to me, I think we're having a drink and you're like, if I have to sleep on your couch, I know I got a couch to sleep on. And you have a nice couch. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, fuck. Like, I didn't think about it till like maybe like three or four weeks later. I was like, wait a second. Like, what? You were all as all in as you could possibly be in an idea. It's something you have historically done throughout your life, right? But I feel like there's no other way to start other than like, your parents immigrated to America. Yep. And your dad's a doctor. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll take you through. So I, I definitely had a, a great childhood. I couldn't have wished for two better parents. Um, I, so both my parents are doctors. They came here in the mid-70s. I, I was not exposed to hardship. Uh, <laughs> you know, two doctors doing well um, and it, it beyond fortunate and just very, very loving parents. Um, I mean, they've been retired now for about about ten years, and it, it was interesting. They 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 worked round the clock. It was just that that period of time where they were still building up their practice, and and were just what kind of doctors busy. were they? Uh, so my dad is a cardiologist, and my mom is an anesthesiologist. I would always have a babysitter in the evening because no, you know, they weren't free to pick me up from school, so. Uh, I had a lot, and I'm an only child, so I had a lot of alone time, a lot of time left left with my my own thoughts to just think about stuff. But you're you're forced to be creative and imaginative because you've got no one around you to to engage with you. Um, I was like, I was the youngest of four, but like I didn't. They were so much older than me, so I was always by myself too. So I got a little bit of the best of both worlds, I think. And I I people tell me, and I don't know if they that oh, you must wish you've had a brother or sister and I'm good with, I'm okay with it. I think your mom told me once, like they were discussing maybe having another child and you're like, no, <laughs> absolutely not. I said something worse than that. But yeah. yeah. You said something way worse. I edited it out. <laughs> um, that might've influenced it. That was my first negotiation. Uh, you know, my parents had this incredibly different life than I did. Uh, and it's just so hard to, actually visualize or understand it in terms of like where they grew up and where they came from. Where, where in India? Uh, so they're, they're from a place called Hyderabad, India, or Andhra Pradesh, which is the name of the state. Huge families and growing up in a village and all this stuff that's just very hard for me to relate to. Uh, but you, you appreciate it in terms of you knew where they came from and you just have to appreciate kind of what they've, what they've given you and make something out of it. So I think there's always just this inner desire to do something with what they've what they've given you or given me in this case. But what's interesting about it is when, when your parents were not born here or came here very recently, there's not a lot of understanding as to kind of societal norms. It's like little things like were imprinted on me, uh, my version of traumatic events, which is not that traumatic. I remember going in for Halloween when I was like four years old and I was the only kid without a costume because my parents don't understand what is, why, why are people wearing, wearing stuff? This makes no sense. And so I was like crying all day. Uh, I made a close friend who gave me like his gun because he had like a cowboy costume on. Um, but that stuck in my mind for some, for some reason. Um, and in kindergarten beginners, they had this thing called, uh, 
tortoise and hare. So if this would never happen today because that would be wrong apparently today. But uh, back then, if you were smart, they would put you in the, the hare group or a rabbit. If you were not so smart, you'd be in the tortoise group. They literally called- The tortoise and the hares. And they would split up the classes and work streams. And my parents come in for the- uh, Parent-teacher parent conference? teacher day. And they're like, why is, what's this? They didn't even understand what these animals, like tortoise, were like, what is this thing? It's turtle, it's hare, it's a rabbit. Like, why is our son with the, the, tor- like the turtles? And he's like, well, he doesn't always like bring his homework in and this and that. So, you know, I would get homework, you get homework each day and I would fill it out. And my mom would be like, oh, good. You finished your homework, but I would never hand it in. We just didn't know <laughs> that you're supposed to, it's homework. There's no, we didn't know you have to bring it from home back to, to school. It's just really weird things like that, that uh, stuck in my mind. And then they moved me to the, to the hairs. So up, so from that point, from age five or six to age 13 or 14, very, zero oversight from my parents on the academic side. They didn't look at report cards, not because they didn't believe it. They just wasn't, they just assumed things were going fine. Um, and then we had this eighth grade graduation. I had a very small class. It was about uh, 32 kids. Um, so my parents were very excited. They, they came with uh, uh, some family. They sat in the front row and they lined up all the kids on this uh, stage and they handed out awards for two hours. Everything from like best in baseball, most improved in French and everything. Um, and I was one of two kids who did not win one award that evening. And the only other kid, he was proud to not, to not, <laughs> to not win anything. And I just saw my parents' faces and, and our family, they were just like mortified. They just didn't know what was happening. They didn't talk to me the whole ride. I mean, I wasn't a bad student in that, that year, but I wasn't doing spectacular in, in any but, classes. But, you, but like, you're an incredibly smart guy. That's what I thought too. <laughs> but like I, I you are you are one of the smartest motherfucking people I, I know. Got no awards. And so my parents, they they set up an appointment with the principal the next day and they bring me in and they said, We just want to know if our if our child is smart or not smart. We just want to know what kind of son we, <laughs> we have. We love him anyway. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of it. And I remember sitting there, I'm like, you know, this fucking school. Like I'm sitting here and they, my parents think I'm, I'm, I'm dumb and this is crazy. And I was so angry. I was angry at the school. I was angry at myself. I was just like, this is just crazy and this, parents to just think. But this. this was a recurring theme throughout your, your adolescent childhood, right? Like, it was my first major chip on my shoulder. And one of the things we always talk about when I meet up with V, inevitably, we have a, like some friend, mutual friends, but like we happen to always talk about the, the chip on our shoulders, right? But my upbringing, not so different, right? Like every step of the way was supposed to get something, didn't. Like my parents worked their asses off. So one day I could go to like a fancy private school via golf, right? Unfortunately, now this past fucking week, everyone's like, oh, the new Supreme Court justice. He went to your high school. And that's one of the reasons why I had such an unhappy high school experience that was the kind of atmosphere, but I never strived. I never excelled and no one had predestined me to be like excellent in academics. I find it hard to believe when you tell me no one said the same thing about you, right? Like you still went to really good schools, 
But in high school, like you said, you never really did too much either, right? Like you just sort of got by. Yeah, I, I, I had one star year, which was ninth grade, where I wanted to get out of this school because they, they screwed me over. How did they grade. screw you over? I got no awards. And that, that was just what drove me that. that so, stuff. so much of it was like get, not getting what you wanted, right? Well, being embarrassed in front of my family, just literally. <laughs> so how much, how much is it is, how but much of my, our life is like these stupid fucking things that happen to us as kids? So dumb. It's the right? stupidest. Like when yeah. you're telling me this and I'm, if I'm listening to this in my car, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? This guy was driven because of trauma that he experienced during. That's what started it. That's at least <laughs> what drove me that summer. Between age 13 and 14. But it's true, yeah, right? That, that, shit, yeah. that shit. It wasn't. And it's, that's why I, say, I was saying there wasn't some big traumatic experience. This, that was the event where I was just like, wow. It was probably proving something to my parents, but also proving something to myself. And like, what would you say to someone that's listening to me? Like, well, Vivek sort of had a privileged life and he got all these things and he finally took advantage of the things that it's like come his way. Okay. I, I, would, I would say this is all walks of life, people are driven by all kinds of different things. And I'm the first to, to say, I consider myself a very lucky person. Uh, so I think first and foremost, you got to value luck. And I think part of that is you have to always appreciate what you have. And, and in my case, I, I was given great opportunities by my parents, great education. And I don't think you can take that for granted. But at the same, in the same time, there's always, there's a strong desire to prove something to yourself to make your own identity and you develop the things that you're passionate about and the things that are important to you. You know, you and I are, I think, driven in the same way where when someone tells us we can't do something or can't accomplish something that just, well, I thought I was fucking crazy. Like literally that back to the future Marty McFly moment where like, you don't tell, don't tell Michael J. Fox that he can't do something because he'll definitely do it until I met you. And I was like, Oh shit, this guy's way crazier than I am because he's, He's so much more hellbound on doing something that he's told that he cannot do. That those that know you are like, never tell Vivek he can't do something. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's true, man. Like, I, I wonder my life too. Like, man, like my parents, my, my dad came to this country in like 63 and hustled his way through restaurants. And I'm the young, it's like so much of a circumstance. Education and like moral conduct, all these things were like, impressed upon me, religion, blah, blah, blah. But like, what is it about your family and your upbringing that gave you the advantage that you think besides being the product of two very, very smart parents, right? Like, I think you were given opportunities. And I think the, actually the most important thing was, I think you would have been successful in any other, any way you were born. You know what I mean? It was the fact that I think you learned that there was resistance and you had to overcome it at an early age. And I think autonomy is key. Um, I, I, one of our mutual friends had given, had given me advice around, uh, how he's raised his children. It's someone that you and I would be surprised. <laughs> like, how does he have such incredible children who are just wonderfully raised and, and smart and polite? And his secret was just autonomy. Don't ask your kids, how was school today? It was one of two answers. It was either good or it was bad. And especially to today's younger generation, there's so much pressures and there's this pressure that happens just even being asked, how was school today? And if it wasn't good, that just like eats at you. And I look back and when he was telling me this advice, I look back, I was never asked those questions. There was no pressure. There was just complete autonomy. <laughs> and 
Sometimes it can be good or bad, but I, I had nothing but pressure and I completely underperformed. <laughs> this is the fucking truth, right? Like my parents would rather have me to have your career than my career simply because it's like, oh, oh I, I, I think it'd be different, but yeah. <laughs> but, but like, again, one of the reasons why I was like, shit, I got to talk to Vivek was I feel like I've been hearing uh, the millennial plight for a long time. And it's never really changed because there's always an 18 or 19 year old kid every year. I've always been stuck in the culinary world. And then ever since I've, I've been doing this, this, this podcast and some other stuff in media with major domo and the ringer, I'm like hearing people like really question like, Hey Dave, like you're unhappy. I'm like, yeah, I, I, I'm unhappy. A lot of the time I'm trying to figure it out. Partly the reason is, is I feel like, I work too much and I understand that that's my crutch for a lot of different things. And I I'm trying to like reverse engineer some semblance of normalcy and happiness, uh, oftentimes unsuccessfully, um, or it's an aberration, whatever, whatever. But the fact of the matter is I feel like a lot of people see the sacrifices that I've gone through and those sacrifices they'll hear that you've gone through. And they're like, I don't know if that's worth it. So I want what they have and I want, that potential materialist success or the, the feeling of, of comfort knowing that you're doing what you want to do, but I don't want to like sacrifice everything. I don't want them to have my misery, but I also want, the, I think there's got to be some like middle ground, right? And you have a company, you have several companies where you're constantly trying to motivate the youngsters today. Like, what do you say? What do you do? So I, I don't. I won't say I have a healthy understanding of the younger generation, but I think I've got a more fuller view as to how folks in their early twenties are wired today versus how we were. Um, and it, it, it's actually really interesting, and I and I think it's good. But I, I don't know if this gets discussed enough. Which is, we, at least me, I didn't have a lot of peers in in our when I was in my early to mid twenties who were idealistic, and I wasn't idealistic at that age. I was just so business focused, economically focused, wanting to make money, wanted to build something valuable. And I, I see a lot of folks who are in our company or other companies who are younger, very idealistic. And it's good. They, they want the company to do good. They want to know what they're doing is actually going to add value. Um, but they also have some tendencies that we had where, you know, when you're younger, <laughs> you don't know everything, but they want autonomy. They want to be in the room. They want to be aware of of how decisions are being made. And I initially took offense to a lot of that. Uh, and now that's actually pretty exciting to actually have a younger generation in companies that want to have context and want to know why. Um, so I think it bodes well if our generation can effectively handle that. But I think in terms of your point around the sacrifice point, um, you know, there, there is, and we talked about this concept at the beginning of, of going all in. There's something like very scary and liberating um, when you kind of enter certain points of life where, you know, for me, it was kind of leaving my job and go starting a business on my own and, um, and, and then another one after that. And it's really around, well, let's just, let's just put all the chips in and let's just make it happen and let's see what happens. Um, but does that lead to happiness? You know what I mean? I don't know. That's, that's, yeah. that's why I genuinely am like, man, like yeah. everyone that's telling me I'm an idiot, especially the ones that are younger, like 
like Isaac, who you haven't met because we're in New York right now. He's like, dude, you're, you're not that happy. And I'm like, I don't disagree with you. I'm trying. I, I would say, well, it doesn't lead to less regrets, but it leads to different types of regrets. So for example, if you have an option A and option B, and option A is you go all in. Option B is you dance around and you don't, and you miss the opportunity, or you sort of try to optimize option A and you screw it up. Well, once you don't take option A and you go B, you go the safer route, you will have regrets in life. So for me- But is it, but I don't know if that's a true statement anymore because there's a lot of people that take the safer route and they're like, they're okay with it. I'm trying to expand that understanding because obviously I'm going to come from that. My initial default setting judgment is like, they're wrong. But I'm like, was it worth it? I don't know. So if you think about growing as a person, I think one of the, the most fun things is and hardest things in life is to keep learning and growing as a human beyond you know reading and, and academic type knowledge. And the only way you can do that is pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Now, everyone has different comfort zones. And if, if a week goes by where you didn't feel uncomfortable at least once in some situation, there's no way you grew. So I think when you pick, everyone's got their own version of a safe route or not taking that risk. If you consistently take that safe route or don't take those risks, you just won't grow as a person. So I think you, I think you, but, but you might I, be comfortable. But that's what I'm trying to, I'm learning is I think some things I'm learning are like, maybe that growth, maybe I don't want to grow. Maybe the unexamined life is not worth living. You know what I mean? Is Maybe the unexamined life is worth living in the sense that like, it's just more comfortable. I, I'm not justifying it. I'm trying my damnedest to understand it. And there's nothing. And by the way, there's that's that it, it's how you're wired as well. Right. I mean, we, but you weren't always wired this way. And that's why I want to sort of get back to is the fact that like, I mean, I know your sort of biography incredibly well because we talk about these things and we're always talking. We're like, Oh yeah, that happened. I guess that is one more reason why I'm the way I am. You graduate Emory, you get a job in investment banking at uh, CSFB, right? Yeah. And from what you've told me, you were not very good at it in healthcare. It's terrible. We had a. <laughs> so, what makes a good. Inv- First of all, what the <laughs> fuck is investment banking? Still not clear on it. Uh, but what, what. Seriously, like, why, why do people, so especially I'll, in the, like, the late I'll 90s, you, early aughts, people are like, oh, invest-. if you I'll weren't going you, to tech, you had to be an I'll investment give you banker. the most cynical description of investment banking. So think about investment banking as an advisory organization filled with people who understand numbers, whose job is to advise companies on decisions that they should make. They advise companies that are trying to raise capital. They advise companies after they raise that capital, then what companies to buy. They then help them buy those companies. Then they advise them on, on to borrow money. Um, so now they borrow a lot of money. And then when they end up in bankruptcy, they advise them through through the bankruptcy and how to wipe out all the shareholders. And then they prop them back up again. And that's the- Why do they make so much money? Because when, you, when you're advising a $50 billion company buying a $10 billion company, they say, oh, we're going to charge a percent of the transaction fee. And that particular investment banker knew this CEO and that CEO, and they brought them together in a room. It's almost like a broker to some extent, except it's not- you know, a half million dollar house, it's a $60 billion thing that they're brokering. And you were, you were, a, I was in the, the healthcare. Lowest, yeah, I was the lowest, as many were, you're, I was an analyst sitting in a cubicle, uh, trying to add numbers up, um, staying up all night, building presentations. And there were, in my analyst class, about a couple hundred people, 
and you get a bonus at the at the end of each year. And I I was like, oh, this seems like a good bonus. And I started talking to a lot of friends, and they, you know, my bonus was five thousand dollars. And I started talking to everyone. And, and when you're 22, like that's great. amazing. It's amazing. And uh, everyone got like 20 grand, 30 grand. <laughs> I'm like, did anyone even get like 10 grand? All of a sudden, that five grand felt terrible when I felt great initially. And I got the word, the lowest bonus out of everyone in out of the analyst class. Nice. And I was like, this is just terrible. Um, this is and, a you're in the you're the tortoise. Yeah. So I so I went, I'm I'm a I'm in the tortoise. I'm out. There's no hope. So I went and talked. Wait, wait. You told me one funny story that like you were so at a point of like, and what I what I think about you too is like structure is not good for you unless you're part of the creation process. And then when I heard you tell me this story once where you were like, fuck it, I'm just going to fuck around. Like you started calling Chipotle. What was that story? You were just like cold calling CEOs or something like that? Oh, pro- probably. We were, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, that's when they were, uh, yeah. Was, yes. what, the, what the fuck was that? <laughs> I, I was always trying to start a business while I was working. It was always some. If there was a light day, I would like invest in stocks, or I would like call up companies to try to understand. It, I was a very torn person working in this like very structured environment. And and you know, out of that experience, I, I basically learned from the folks I was working for that I didn't understand finance. Um, they were like, "You just don't know what you're doing." That's why you got the lowest bonus. So I spent two weeks. I took two weeks off and just went through my finance. I actually tried to to learn finance. The most important lesson out of that was I was always obsessing over trying to think about things strategically or creatively. I didn't have any knowledge of the details. I never understood the details. I never understood the ground truth. It was just too much work to kind of like read stuff and do all that. That to me, for me, was the, the lesson of like, if you actually understand the details, you can think about things really strategically. You can think about things practically. Practically, your creative ideas actually have some context to it, and I also learned how much I hated finance. Um, so the the point you're describing on uh, the societal value and what do they do on a net basis, finance takes more value out of society than it gives. It doesn't have to be that way, um, and I think it'll evolve over time uh, under some of the themes we talked about earlier, uh, but. For someone whose parents are physicians who help people on a daily basis, I had so much internal guilt working in finance because I they would call me and they'd be like, "Oh, what did you do today?" And they they would always ask me, "So what do you do?" And they just they they liked that I had a decent salary, but they just didn't really understand what I did, and it felt really weird. Um, and so after a few years, I just I was out. I'm like, I gotta I quit. I, I had to go do my own thing. And I was like, I'm going to go start a, start a business. Um, and <laughs> if you asked anyone who I worked with, they're like, there's no way that guy is going to build a business. And they were right. I would have probably said the same thing if I was. And I, I met your at friends around that time. They were like, no. <laughs> Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. If you love to score amazing deals at incredible hotels, you'll love Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight partners with hotels to help them sell their unsold rooms, helping you find sweet deals at cool top-rated hotels. Hotel Tonight shows you the best deals at hotels you actually want to stay at. No more scrolling through endless lists of choices. Even though their name's Hotel Tonight, they're not just for last-minute bookings. You can book in advance, perfect for planners and procrastinators alike. Hotel Tonight is perfect for spontaneous weekend getaways, staycations, three-day weekends, road trips, business bookings, and more. 
I'm going to use it when I go visit my parents in Northern Virginia so I don't have to sleep in their basement. That's never going to happen again. It's so easy to use. Book hotel tonight in 10 seconds in just three taps and a swipe. There's even the HT Perks program where the more you book, the better the deals get. You know, I'm traveling more and more and more and it's really the app that I use more often than not because it's just so simple. Get the Hotel Tonight app now to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels. That's Hotel Tonight, the only booking app you need. And now back to my conversation with Vivek Garapali. I think it's fascinating to me that like uh, with all the talent that you had, no one thought you had the ability to take it really anywhere at that time, right? But that's weird because if you look at the rest of the world, you're killing it. You've you've graduated from a great university, you've done X, Y, and Z, but in the scheme of the universe that you're living in, you're at the bottom of the barrel. Yes. Odds were low at this point, just in terms of probability of success in terms of building something. And like, you didn't come to the realization like, oh, like I got to fucking do what I want to do and I have to fucking bet it all because I'll never get the best out of myself. When did that fucking happen? So I I very impulsively bought a small business. Uh, bought a small uh, sleep disorder diagnostic center. So you di- it's essentially you diagnose for sleep apnea. This is now like 2004, 2005. You know, when you're working in New York and you're going to a nice office or whatnot, when you're now going to, in my case, New Jersey each day, all of a sudden you've, in my little world, I've moved away from the traditional path of just continuing in, in finance. And that was extremely liberating where I was like, you know, this is better. And what happens when you go from working for someone to running something on your own, you're so much more mentally tired at the end of the day because the work product or what you're doing is for yourself and for having your business survive versus actually doing something for someone else. The first business I built was, I would say, not very good. I, I bought a sleep center. I brought doctors and his partners. I met other physicians. The equivalent of what I did was you had Noodle Bar in East Side and Lower East Side or East Side did really well. And then you said, okay, now I'm going to open up a noodle bar in South Florida. And I'm going to open up a noodle bar in Abilene, Texas. And I'm going to open up a noodle bar in Old Bridge, New Jersey. That's what I did. How many, how many sleep centers did you we have? I had uh, 12 centers. All over the yeah, country. I, one in, I was flying to Abilene, Texas, Longview, Texas, Jupiter, Florida, like Pennsylvania. The Literally the dumbest way to build a business. Um, but I would get introduced to physicians and then that's where we would open up uh, a center. And, and clearly anyone who knew anything about business, that's not how you build a business. And I, I'm sure I knew that, but I just, you just think that it'll work itself out and that stuff doesn't work itself out. But when, what you just said to me is like terrible advice for someone to follow. Like, Hey, the only way you're going to see the, they get the enlightened feeling and business and success of Vivek is if you do something incredibly dumb, you know what I mean? But like, it, it, how do you tell someone to be like, you're also going to have to do something incredibly stupid and painful in order to get to the better part. It feels smart at the time. It really does. One of the most valuable things I think is not having hindsight. When you don't have hindsight, you don't know what you don't know. And you're, you're willing to just do stuff. And that's the power of being young, right? hundred percent. It's powerful to think that you know you can do something, but not know enough that it's not possible. Because if you knew the actual odds, you would never have done it, which is why I believe you should do all the dumb shit humanly possible and be as selfish as possible when you're young 
in your 20s, when you have some semblance of being an adult, you sort of know what you're doing, but the reality is you know fucking nothing. And you have no other obligations other than yourself. Which is why when I'm talking to these these kids, not kids, these these people that are in their mid-20s, like you should be doing the most courageous, scary thing right fucking now. And it's something that you did, right? And you parlayed the sleep center, which you realized was an untenable business. Bad business with, with bad business decisions being made. Um, but I, I fortunately extricate out of that, made, made a little bit of money um, by selling some of these centers. And, but what's funny, when you have a little success, or even if it wasn't successful, you, as a young person, you gain, one, you're incredibly naive and you gain an insane amount of overconfidence. So, you know, at that point in time, this is early 2007, and I'm hooked on healthcare. I love it. I think it's a fascinating industry, uh, fascinating business or business area. And in New Jersey at the time, all the hospitals were nonprofit. Uh, and one of them filed for bankruptcy, and it was losing about $40 million a year uh, in, in Hudson County. When we say not-for-profit, so it's a state-run hospital? So nonprofit is, uh, uh, think of it like a foundation. Uh, so not state-run. Uh, but you know, like American Red Cross, that's that's a nonprofit. Uh, you know, uh, the Gates Foundation is a is a nonprofit. So seventy five percent of hospitals in the U.S. are actually nonprofits, meaning uh, there's no shareholders, there's a board, there's a CEO. Uh, sometimes the CEO gets paid a lot of money in these nonprofits, uh, but all the profit stays with the the hospital in this case, uh, and they don't pay taxes. Uh, so in New Jersey at the time, all hospitals were nonprofit. Uh, but now this one filed for bankruptcy, losing a ton of money. Uh, and I, I went to a, a, a former or a mentor of mine who I used to work for. And I said, oh, there's this like uh, hospital in bankruptcy. We should look at it. Would you be interested in helping me raise money? And he set up some uh, calls. They were like, we're not interested. <laughs> so I was like, okay, whatever. He was kind enough to introduce me to the law firm that was advising this hospital. So I walk in there and uh, explain to them that I'd be really interested in buying this hospital out of bankruptcy. They're like, have you ever even been to a hospital before? I said, once when I was like, <laughs> like nine and I fell down. Uh, and, and I gave them my pitch as to my turnaround plan. Um, not a very good one. Uh, and then I got a call a few weeks later from this lawyer who was advising the hospital and I didn't respond back. And then they called again. I said, they must be desperate. I mean, if I'm their option. And I get involved in this process uh, and I end up being the only bidder. And so just to kind of give, give a little bit of, of the visual. So this is a community hospital in Bayonne, New Jersey, over a thousand employees, most of them unionized, losing 4 million a month, meaning it literally like takes in 4 million less <laughs> than it makes or than it spends. And- the hospital had about uh, $500 million of debt. That means it owed $500 million to people and companies. And you bought that debt? Well, the, so the interesting thing about bankruptcy in this country and corporate bankruptcy is it, it's the most evolved, it's one of the like, well-developed forms of, of business in this country where uh, companies that employ people that have lots of jobs are adding value. Sometimes those companies make really bad decisions. They borrow way too much money. They do things that end up where they have to, like, for example, in this case, they had some billing issues where the government was fining them $250 million. And they 
had no money on their balance sheet to pay it. Uh, so this is the Department of Justice at the time, for example. And so the judge's job in bankruptcy is, how do we keep this important asset continuing, employing people, servicing the community? In this case, there were 30,000 people a year were going to the emergency room. You know, you had another 30,000 people or 50,000 people getting other types of services. How do we keep it going? And so the judge's job is to find people who are willing to take this thing and then negotiate with those who are owed money to let it out of bankruptcy. So I was in a good negotiating position for, for two reasons. I was the only bidder and I barely had any money to buy this thing. For example, we went down to DC and the Department of Justice, so this is the federal government, said, okay, well, you've, we've got to figure out a plan where you can pay back this $250 million. $250 million. Yeah, and I, fucking nuts. So I'm sitting there and I'm saying, well, we, we, I, I don't think we can put together more than $5 million to buy this thing. And, uh, and we're gonna have, there's a lot of other fees. So our projections show we're only going to have a little more than a million when we officially buy the hospital, actually run it. So we settled on $2.5 million that we would back-end load at the end of five years. And we signed our deal with, with federal government. And then we're dealing with all these other creditors. And it was the most bizarre negotiation because I was very transparent with them that we, we didn't really have any money. Um, and here's the pool and we can divvy it up. And what year was this? Uh, this was 2007. Right before the economic collapse. Yes, perfect timing. <laughs> so, uh, and that was part of why it was impossible to raise, to raise capital. Um, and, and so- And this hospital cannot shut down. It can if, if the deal doesn't happen. And if that does, you completely devastate a community, basically. It, it's, yeah, it's, and it would have been terrible. I mean, it's on a peninsula. Maybe it'd be different today, but back then, it, I think it would have been a, a bad, bad thing. So I, I learned this story from someone that regrets this but, and a friend of ours. And they said they, they, a bunch of your friends went to London for some kind of bachelor party. And there's like 25 of you guys on this plane there. And everyone's having a grand old time drinking. And you're the only one that like, like with the three rows of like, you know, seats next to you with piles and piles of books. <laughs> and everyone's like, what the fuck are you doing, Vivek? And you're like, oh, I think I can buy this hospital sort of the consensus was everyone was sort of like laughing at you. They're like, really, dude? <laughs> like, that's the dumbest thing. And you're like, hey, I would love some help. Um, you, you were trying to raise money and desperately. desperately trying to raise money. And you're like, hey, raise, give, give me some money. And not many people did, right? Did anyone? Uh, there were uh, two people. But how come everyone else didn't see something to you? This is the, like, the, like the, the important part in so many people's lives as to like, well, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to do it. I think this is one of the reasons why it was successful. You know, it's like when in sports, like Aaron Rodgers, right? Fell to like the 26th pick when he should have been like the first pick or like Tom Brady was the sixth round pick, like the lowest selection quarterback in like 1999 when no one believed him, but he believed in himself. And like, that's the shit. It's not the only reason, but that's like what takes someone over the edge to be like, fuck it. Fuck everyone. I'm going to fucking do it. I definitely felt that way when I opened up Momofugo. I couldn't hire anyone. No one wanted to work with me. Not one fucking person. I tried to hire my friend, Brendan Moran, who was in teacher's college at Columbia because no one wanted to work with me because they're like, Dave, you're not even a sous chef and we don't even think you're that great of a cook. So this is a terrible idea. I feel like that's sort of the same thing, but you still to this day don't think that and you don't know why no one invested in this idea that you had a very clear, lucid thing. I was like, this can really work. I mean, I do and don't know. I mean, I, 
I don't know in the sense of, it was just, there were so many no's. Everyone said no. Like hundreds of people said no. And so how many, and you asked oh, how I many? Mean, I mean, I just spent, because if I wasn't working on the deal, I was meeting someone to try to raise capital. And it just, it was always- So what convinced you that this was the fucking idea that you were going to like, just I, die over? There, I think there's something around just being totally myopic, mass conviction. And there was this thing in my head that was, well, every day in this local paper, they're saying this hospital is going to close the next day. And there's still a hundred people going into this hospital, into the emergency room every day. So there's clearly demand. And, and, and what's really interesting about a hospital, it's a monopoly. There, you know, in a lot of these states, you can, you're not just allowed to open up another hospital. Um, and there was not a lot of logic beyond that. It was a super, super simple thesis. There's many ways to, to talk yourself out of it, but it, it wasn't worth Now on the flip side, I didn't have a hospital background, very little business experience. So a lot of strong reasons why everyone should have said, sh- did say no <laughs> in terms of like from a pattern recognition. How much did it bother you to the, the people closest to you that your friends that you would like back you? And this is one reason why I think you constantly back people regardless is because like, I think at the moment of need, people didn't back you. There's something that I, I, I love talking about, which is people trajectory is you don't bet on people in terms of how they are now. You bet on them as to what you think they're going to be in three years or five years. You really have to form a view of folks as to their learning trajectory. You know How much are they going to push themselves to become a better person, become a better business person or a better chef, or just are they going to try to enrich themselves in various ways? I think the thing that, that, again, another chip on my shoulder is people didn't value my drive or my ambition or w- how I was trying to push myself to actually solve these problems. And that, that was the mismatch. So when I think about this, I actually was at a, a talk with Billy Bean and I love Billy Bean and I love the idea of Moneyball because it's all about the underdog. It's about uh, finding value in, in things that people don't perceive. And one of the reasons why people don't perceive it is because it's like some stupid cultural belief when you have overwhelming data that suggests otherwise. And it's like, you, you, you can see the movie Moneyball and, or read yeah. the amazing book by Michael Lewis. And like, you had an idea and you had data that supported it. And it was overwhelmingly obvious that you needed to make this happen to the point where you were like, I'm going to abandon fucking everything to pursue this because I may not be like the best finance person, but I know enough now where there's a emerging pattern that tells me that this is what you need to fucking do. And because of the fact that you had sort of been this individual that's done your own thing and not perceived as the traditional arc, people were like, no. And I guess that's why I'm so passionate about this. When I talk to you or listen to my own story of how I fucking done, have done it through much luck was a simple fact that like, I want people, I want to encourage people to take a chance. And it gives me also, I think, deeper empathy for people that I think are sometimes like incredibly stupid or like do horrible acts, right? Potentially. Like uh, recently, the all-star baseball player on the Milwaukee Bucks made some, I don't even know what his statements were, but something we've spoken about the past before with um, Isaac and Aggie uh, about uh, the Buffalo Bills uh, quarterback, like you're betting on the person. We are an all-fallible we make mistakes. We are idiots when we're younger. And you only hope through experience that we're going to be better. And we hope that we're going to find something that we truly believe in and then contribute to society. And 
I get upset when I feel that people shun people away simply because they don't meet their expectations. I totally agree. And there's, I mean, your point about the underdog, there's a desire to see people rise against, against the odds. And, and I, I think there's a, an excitement that uh, I think I, I know you share this, which is believing in people that other people aren't believing in and providing all the help and support you can to those people to get to where you know that they're capable of. Yeah. And, and that's something that to me is one of the most satisfying things, just watching folks succeed in, in business or being an entrepreneur is seeing them get to places Absolutely. that others don't think they can. And I feel lucky to have that mentorship from people that have, have believed in me. You, and, and, like, and I'm not condoning when people make stupid, stupid mistakes, but what I'm trying to like get better at as I get older is to not give them the benefit of the doubt, but like trying not to judge them on the, on the initial act or because of a period of time where they were just dumb as rocks and, and, and seeing how their life trajectory unfolds and then making that judgment. And, you know, like I look at what you've done, particularly in this period. And I'm like, fuck, like it makes me emotional thinking about like, wow, this fucking kid at that time, we didn't know each other was like, I want all in. And I talk to individuals that passed investing in you. And there's this horrible tinge of regret to the point where they've convinced themselves that's not that big of a deal. But I know <laughs> that it bothers, bothers the shit out of them that they didn't see what they needed to see. And I love reminding them. <laughs> um. Anytime you, I think you take a big risk, there's failure, there's success, but there's, there's zero doubt that you will learn so much on either side. And were you afraid of the downside though? Were you like, if this doesn't work, I don't give a fuck. I was frightened, couldn't sleep, but you, you get to a point where it's, it, you can't turn back. You actually, you went too far. In, in this case, we were in federally federal bankruptcy court. I've signed documents. Like now, you're, it's not like some state court or there's like a judge who's like very high up on you know on which is like it's hard to kind of describe the visual. But it's a very scary situation where you can't actually you're not permitted to. Turn but how out. important was that for you to be to the point where you couldn't go back because you were committed already? You already bought the ticket per se. You know what I mean? Like. There was only one way out there. Yeah, there's two ways out. I, 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 one way, I lose all my money, I'm back in a bankruptcy again. There, and there were a lot of bets going on as to whether it took a month or six months for us to go back in a bankruptcy. Or the other way is you, you survive and it works. And there's, there's no thought as to building something big. There's no thought as to you know, what we could do in three years or five years. You're now literally like, shit, I've, I have to make this work because if I, if I don't, I'm back to ground zero and reputationally credibility. I mean, I, I wasn't able to raise money before. I definitely will never be able to raise, raise money again. Um, and, and that in a weird way, it creates incredible focus because there's just literally two paths. It's like that moment when I feel you hear these stories where that adrenaline gives someone superhuman strength. Like it's not that ridiculous to say that that focus Gives you like the, the the ability to make impossible things happen. It turns off your ADD. Yeah, and it also because I've lived this moment in a completely different way where you're like, oh, when I tell people failure wasn't an option, right? Like my parents mortgaged their house for Sambar. You know what I mean? Like their business. Like oh shit! Like 
if your livelihood and the people around you gets affected because of my stupidity, then it makes you grow up real fucking fast. And I've always admired about that story. It's like, holy fuck. Like we will never get into all the minutia about all the crazy decisions that I've learned about what happened. Maybe someone else will, but if the world knew what was at stake for you to do what you did, it's fucking crazy to me. It is so fucking crazy to me that you like, you're like, first of all, I'm going to buy a fucking hospital. Second of all, I have no money to do it. Thirdly, I don't even know how to run a fucking hospital. <laughs> and that's what happened next. And that, and the most frightening thing was, uh, uh, was February 1, 2008. We now officially own this hospital. Um, we have a little over a million of cash in, in the bank account. We've got a two and a half million dollar payroll coming in two weeks. And I'm getting these bills on my desk to pay McKesson or Marisorsberg. And these are big uh, drug distributors because you need a lot of supplies in the hospital. I'm like, this is going to end really bad. Like this, this is crazy. This, like, I, I was like that first time, like this, I've made such a terrible decision. <laughs> this is going to end in a week. Like it's over. It's over. And, and it was the, it was the most horrifying thing when you're now there and it, it, there is actually now no turning back. I mean, not even, there's not even a technicality to turn back. Um, and then that focus increases even more. And what, and I had no idea, zero idea of, of what was about to come in terms of the, the public policy stuff I was stepping into, you know, how politically charged a hospital is in a community uh, or in a state like New Jersey, the players around, you know, really massive insurers that you deal with, United Healthcare or Aetna or a Blue Cross. Um, and being naive, I was able to just look at it like a really basic math equation. And, and so, you know, the best ex- way to compare it is, you know, imagine if you have a, you have a restaurant and uh, a third of your customers can't afford to uh, pay the bill but you're required to feed everyone who comes in. So you have to raise prices on the two thirds who can afford to pay. And there's sort of like a, a, and that covers the cost of those who can't afford it. And that was part of the reason why this hospital went into bankruptcy is it happened to be in a really low income area where only 20% of the population who went to the hospital had good health insurance. Everyone else was either in Medicaid, no insurance, which means you get very little percentage of cost. So you have this tiny percentage where you need to make all your profit. So pretty naively, I went to all the major national insurers that were our our customers who represented our consumers and asked them for much higher rates. And I had my math already and showed them we're losing three and a half million a month. And if you increase your rates by a high amount, like a few hundred percent, I could get the margins to like five, six percent, which I thought was pretty reasonable. And they all said no. And I just couldn't understand it. I said, well, don't you want the hospital to survive? I mean, blah, blah, blah. And at that point, uh, we knew what we had to do, which was go to battle with all the health insurers. Uh, so we ended up ripping up all the contracts. I mean, there were other things with the turnaround. We uh, learned all about uh what a union was and negotiated with the union on a new agreement um, and uh, fixed a bunch of things in the supply chain. But one by one, we ended up in just massive confrontations with uh, health insurers because we said, okay, we're not, 
contracting with you. You anymore. were making decisions then, and tell me if I'm wrong, which I probably am. That if you knew better, you would never have done any of these decisions because they were so fucking batshit crazy. I wouldn't have done it in the first place. <laughs> if I knew now what I knew back then, I wouldn't have never done it. There, there's two. And you were rubbing things. people, everyone, the wrong way. Everyone. So everyone. like, people hated your guts. Absolutely. Uh, except except the local community because they had this hospital that they could go to. Um, the services existed, but in terms of the major businesses involved, the health insurance companies, they were pissed because we were, uh, and I get it, we were, we were increasing our pricing to them so we could cover the costs for, for everyone else. And so you basically stuck stuff. it to the health insurance company. We did. And, and I just thought it was a good business decision. <laughs> it just made maths. I didn't understand the public policy implications. I didn't, everyone thought it was a, some sort of like genius strategy that we were designing for years. I'm like, no, no you don't understand. I got there was there, no other option. I got there on February 1st. So I'm like, this is going to end badly. How do we solve this problem? Um, and that's what happened, that we came up with a solution. I, I feel like we're going to talk a lot. And I don't want to go over everything. But I want to sort of end it on this right now. And it was an interesting conversation that I had again with Isaac and some of the interns of the ringer and how afraid they were of taking that chance that you have taken or I have, or many other people have taken because they believe that you guys are the exception to the rule. And what about the stories of all the individuals that have failed that have not been as successful as you? I don't have an answer to that. And when I see people from my own intuition without any data or real fucking verified facts other than my own gut and from what I've seen over the years, because so many people open up a restaurant, which is arguably the dumbest business you could possibly open up even dumber than a restaurant. I mean, a hospital that's hemorrhaging money (laughs) is the simple fact that when I see people that are successful in the restaurant business, it's because they're like, they're fucking like they're off. They're so off that they're going to make it work. And when I see people that take that chance and every single person that has been almost off in my viewpoint that I've come to know have almost, I'd say almost everyone has become successful in the restaurant industry. Anyone that has taken a rational approach to the business, they've almost all failed. And I think there is a correlation. What I mean by this is there is a story that I've, I, I t- say all the time to the people that want to open up a restaurant, whether it's a first time or they're a great chef or cook and they want to open up their first spot. I say, open up, um, before you open up and you do your fundraising dinner, invite all your investors and all the people that are giving you money, friends and family, and you do your entire menu. And then your last course, you have a big pot and they think it's going to be like a flambe dish, but you have all their checks and you burn it all in front of them. (laughs) You burn it all. And there's only been three people, and I won't say who they are, three people. I've told this story like a hundred times to scare people away from the pain and suffering and irrationality and the stupidity of what they want to do. And I'm not trying to discourage them. I'm actually trying to encourage them, but I'm trying to save them potential suffering because if you're rational, you're going to be like, why would I do that? But because I'm like, well, the percentage chances you will actually do that, just not physically like burning in front of them. You will spend all their money and you'll have nothing to show for it. And it's going to be awful. There's been three times in my life where people have said, if that's what it takes, then I'll fucking do it. 
And I don't know how to explain that to someone to be like, hey, man, like, if you want to have that freedom, you're going to have to take that fucking chance. You're going to have to bet on yourself. And dealing with this idea of food, I've constantly been inspired, even though I don't probably support his politics. I probably don't support who he, he, he obviously supported McDonald's or his environmental fucking poli- anything about this individual named RJ Simplot, who was responsible for the modern day French fry. And you can read about him in McDonald's textbooks and history books, but I've always thought about this individual. And you remind me of RJ Simplot in the simple sense of this. He made, he's from like Idaho, I believe. He made a ton of money selling French fries and growing potatoes. And he saw the trajectory where the, the McDonald's brothers and Ray Kroc were going to take this thing. And every step of the way, he knew that he had to come up with a delicious frozen French fry. And he basically invented it. It did not exist before that. And he lost, his val- he lost his fortune like several times over, going to bankruptcy many times over when he didn't need to do it. Over and over and over again, whenever it was like, you're an idiot. But he was compelled to be like, I got to do this. He was almost like Captain Ahab, and that was his white whale, the potato, to the point where he did it, and he became one of the wealthiest individuals in the world. I'm not trying to celebrate his wealth. I don't really give a shit about that. But what, like, for me as a human being that, like, gets me, like, almost incredibly emotional is, like, I want to know what that guy felt like as to be like, I'm going to fucking do this. I don't give a fuck. And I have no doubt that you're going to do more shit. I have no doubt that you're going to be in more positions where you're going to be like, Dave, I might have to sleep on your couch. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) With all that said and done. It's, It's a distinct possibility. This is like crazy to me. Like we just saw each other in Las Vegas when we were at their, the, the ringer, we, we did the whole thing at the Caesars and you said that to me again. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this person? What's next for you then, man? So, you know, just, just listen to what you were saying. I, in terms of what drive, I, I think the example you gave of your parents taking a mortgage and it, there's, you can look back at any stage of our careers and the risks taken. There was always a set of people who believed in you. It was always a tiny minority, but the that type of support, those few people who formulate that inif- initial foundation, that actually I think um, is what folks who are kind of debating between taking a risk or not anything. Like risk is nothing to do with business. It could be out of business, whatever it may be. It's not listen to the voices that are that are providing the uber rational approach uh, is listen to the folks who actually are believing in you. And, and to me, that is how you can actually like gain that strength to, to make that tough decision, uh, to take that risk. And that's all I want, right? Like I, I, I don't want anyone to take dangerous advice, but I also don't want anyone to feel like they have regret. But I want people to know it's like, if you fail and it hurts, you can't be afraid of that either because I think the only way you're going to get to potentially where you want to go, and it's not the only way. There are many different ways. And if you decide to just be on the sidelines, there ain't nothing wrong with that. That's like what I'm trying to like believe. But when I come across individuals that happen to be my close friends that constantly do this on a day-to-day basis, I find it incredibly inspiring. That's awesome. That's why, that's why I wanted you on the podcast. Hopefully you'll come on many times in the this future. This has been a lot of fun. Like, I appreciate all the kind words. Very nice <laughs> but it's true. This guy's got a ton of fucking crazy stories about what he's done in his career. And I don't know how open he can be with a lot of them, but just his general insights and everything. Um, 
again, like most recently, I won't get into it. We had a massive fucking argument <laughs> over politics and all this other shit. But part of this is getting me out of my own comfort zones and, and to help out where I can. So, Mr. Vivek, thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. This has been awesome. <laughs> really enjoyed it.